0: Indigenous artists often straddle a space created by white anthropologists between art and craft. Today's guest grapples with that dichotomy, creating art from tradition that in its time was purely practical and seeing his own contemporary activism viewed as art when it was, in fact, protest. He's Chanupa Hanske Luger this week on Story in the Public Square. Welcome to Story in the Public Square, where storytelling meets public affairs. I'm Jim Ludis from the Pell Center at Salve Regina University.
1: And I'm G. Wayne Miller with the Providence
0: Journal. This week, we're joined by Chanupa Hanska Luger, a multidisciplinary artist and an enrolled member of the three affiliated tribes of Fort Berthold. Chanupa is joining us from his home in New Mexico. Welcome to Story in the Public Square.
2: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be
0: here. We want to talk about uh, your body of work and it's extensive and it's impressive but for starters tell us how, how, when did you know that you had art in you? When did you know that you had a, a creative uh, perspective that you wanted to share?
2: Uh, I would say relatively early um, as far back as I can remember I've been creative but I, I imagine that's probably true for Every human being, you know, like if you go back far enough, we drew, we colored all of these sorts of things. I just leaned into it.
0: And did, did I read this right, that uh, your mother was an, was a working artist as well? Is that correct?
2: Yeah, that is correct. So I was around uh, the the market of art my whole life and kind of understanding the ins and outs of, of it as a career uh, didn't seem inaccessible to me
1: so you also during your childhood uh, and, and still now spent time at uh, the standing rock reservation that's where your father lives is that correct i mean he was another influence is another influence obviously in your life tell, tell us that's about correct. that. that's correct
2: yeah my father lives in fort yates north dakota which is also where i was born uh, my brothers as well still live in fort yates um cattle ranchers
1: Let's get into some of your work. How about the Mirror Shield project? That came out of the protests in opposition to the proposed pipeline through Standing Rock, which of course made international headlines everywhere. Um, you were participating in that, but the Mirror Shield was something unique and special. Talk about the evolution of that and what it meant and what it became and who, who participated too. Yeah.
2: Yeah, um, the mirror shield project was really built out of necessity. Um, It was a mirrored surface uh, in a shield form to protect the water protectors standing on the front line. uh, Facing the opposition. Um, There were, you know, private companies, police force brought in from all over the place. National Guard, in fact. uh, all they're trying to protect the right of an oil company and the uh, pipeline that was running underneath the Missouri River, and as everybody knows, this was kind of a, a almost a year long engagement. I guess it kind of came out of uh, necessity. The design, uh, I never really thought of it as art, uh, which was kind of interesting. I thought of it m- more so as protective.
1: So. But- Chinupa, what what were what are the water shields what were they made of and what were they used for i mean it, it became a type of art but it, it also had a a protective uh value as you were you describing you mean what? the mirror shields the mirror shield yeah exactly
0: yeah yeah the
2: mirror shields were exactly that they were a shield with a reflective surface to um the, the reason they were designed and the materials they were made out of was really trying to answer a question, which was, I'm one person, what can I do? Uh, that question popped up quite a bit in my social media feeds as I was traveling back and forth to Standing Rock. And I think a lot of people who were uh, engaging um, to, to protect water from this oil uh, company were putting their bodies on the front line. And we've seen some of the footage from there where percussion grenades were shot directly into the crowd, rubber bullets, um, uh, pepper sprays, and even water hoses uh, were kind of brought down on, on people standing, in, uh, you know, trying to protect the water. And so the shield was designed to help protect them on, on the front line. The concept was that they could be used like a, like a Roman phalanx or something along those lines where you could interlock the shields uh, with each other. But the materials was really dependent on what I could get access to at a major uh, box store, hardware store that could be found across the country with ease. And so the design came out of um, what could you build in the parking lot of one of these box stores uh, and, and send that to the people uh, in, in Standing Rock? And so the, the materials were masonite or some sort of uh, uh, sheeted ply and um, like a mylar, like a reflective uh, mirror, mirror mylar. We even used a uh, window tint that you could get relatively inexpensively uh, from a hardware store uh, to put on your home windows and uh, a little spray 77 or some sort of spray adhesive and paracord. Uh, the design was really simple and it was created to be simple so that I could get participation from many different people to answer the question, I'm one person, what could I do? Um, one person buying these materials could make six shields. And uh, those six shields would stand on the front line, protecting a 100 people behind that front line, which were then in turn standing in front of the camp, which had uh, thousands of people in it. And then you consider that they're protecting water for 8 million people downstream. So it was an idea of by participation Um, and by providing a prompt, one person could actually do a lot. Uh, and that's what the design came out of Now it was hidden as art, you know, um, the art aspect of it was kind of subterfuge to, uh, allow these shields to make it into the camps and protect, uh, people on the front line.
0: Well, and that's actually the question that I wanted to ask you next was that did you, these served a very practical immediate purpose. Have you been surprised by the interest in the in the so-called art community uh, for uh, exhibitions of, of the Mirror Shields?
2: Yeah, I'm surprised by it. The The biggest surprise for me is a question that I ask myself every time that this work is exhibited, which is, you know, to the institution, where were you when we needed you, you know? Um And I think that's an ongoing question, uh, as Standing Rock is not an isolated event, that there are continued efforts to annex land and um, kind of face environmental racism that's been uh, implemented by the United States on its indigenous population for as long as this country existed.
1: So let's get into another one of your projects, and it's... Everyone, the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women, Girls, Queer, and Trans Relatives bead Project. Tell us about that. Again, we, we discovered this reading the New York Times piece. It had art to illustrate it. And again, it, it totally blew us away, both for its artistic purpose, but also for the message that it was sending, the story that it was telling, the importance it was bringing to such an important issue. Tell us about that.
2: Yeah, this, this project was built out of, um, kind of in the wake of the Mirror Shield project. That was the first time that I considered using uh, the population to help create a body of work. And what I found was, um, especially using platforms like social media, the desire to do more is, is very high. Um, the bead project, I asked people to make uh, a singular bead, and really this was visualizing data. This data that was gathered from Canada uh, due to the Truth and Reconciliation Acts, they actually gathered information around the number of um, people missing uh, and, and bodies found of Indigenous women in Canada. And with that data, you also got mapping um, locations where people disappeared. And there were just incredible correlations by by gathering that data that uh, informed me in the process of making this work as far as locations of disappearance. And um, that correlated uh, almost blatantly with extractive industry in Canada. And, uh, I think the violence that indigenous people have faced in, uh, relationship to extractive industries is, um, it's a matter of, of dehumanization. And so how do you, how do you allow people to understand and truly see our humanity, uh, is, uh, it's a challenge. It's, it's funny that in the 21st century, you would, you would still consider having to have this conversation, but the um, the data has the power for systems to create safeguards and laws to protect people. But data gathering is incredibly dehumanizing. And it was strange to me to consider that the solution for dehumanization is dehumanization. And so uh, visualizing that data was a way to rehumanize the data that these are not singular ticks, but these are human lives. And um, each bead is a representation of a, of, a, of a, you know a dot in that data, a, a tally mark, you know. And so that allowed the population to better understand the depth and the scale of this loss. Uh, and also became a way to have some catharsis for people who were suffering the loss of a loved one. Um, they could create a bead and have it, understand it; it is represented in the data gathering and just kind of rehumanizes the the system that we use to create safeguards and protocols and laws really around protecting populations
1: so what's your sense of everyone's impact on the public discourse understanding awareness of missing and murdered indigenous people did it Foster conversations? Did it raise awareness? Did it achieve that objective? You know, again, art related to the politics and policy of the situation. Talk about that because I'm guessing it really did have an impact.
2: Yeah, I, I think that the power of art has always been to communicate um, and to, to share stories, to share experiences and histories. Um, Art has a profound power for us to kind of examine and understand the depths of situations, but it's also um, it creates an anchor from one cultural group to another, and those anchors are great platforms to build bridges across. Having a large-scale um, um, piece that's looking at data and allows you know everybody in you know who experiences it to understand the scale of that, um, I think has, has, has a profound effect. Also just being able to describe the situation and have a visual context or cue is, um, it allows people to understand it outside of, you know, systems of data gathering and even the, even the number 4,000, which is what the number was that was brought from Canada is, a single number, like I understand it as the number 4,000, which is just one number, but when you understand that 4,000 is 4,000 individual pieces, then you recognize that scale. This is why the piece is called Every One, because it's about counting every single one and being able to see it. Um, And I think that has, uh, psychologically, that affects people more than the singular number of data gathering.
0: Junupa, your your work has been described, and I want to get this right, as process-oriented, not object-oriented. I'm curious what that means to you and whether or not you agree with that characterization.
2: Yeah, I would say that my practice is multifaceted. I definitely, you know, make objects. I'm surrounded in my studio by by things, but the from my definition of art, art is a verb, it is a process, it is um, an intergenerational uh, uh, experience that I'm learning how to work with different materials because of uh, generations before me that have worked with these materials, not to mention other systems that are developing uh material science and and adapting to these new materials is a process like it just is so most of art for me uh does inhabit the the process base but out of that process are byproducts and those byproducts are the objects that are celebrated through the the market of art um uh, they're housed in museums the object itself uh, travels further than I can. And if I'm successful in my attempt in the creative process, then it, every object then exists as a vessel that holds a story. And so its function still exists, which is also a part of the process.
0: We need to take a quick moment for station identification. This is Story in the Public Square, where storytelling meets public affairs. An audio version of this show can be heard multiple times every weekend on Sirius XM Satellite Radio's popular Politics of the United States. That's the POTUS channel, number 124. We produce Story in the Public Square with a great crew at Rhode Island PBS, and we're lucky to work with them. I'm Jim Lutis. On most days, you can find me running the Pell Center at Salve Regina University in beautiful Newport, Rhode Island. If you want to connect with me on Twitter, you can do so at JMLutis. Joining me as he does every week in the co-host chair is my friend G. Wayne Miller, who is an award-winning journalist with the Providence Journal and the author of 20 books. You can find Wayne on Twitter, too, at G. Wayne Miller. And our guest this week is Chanupa Hanska Luger, a multi-talented artist and an enrolled member of the three affiliated tribes of Fort Berthold. His work has been described as activating speculative fiction and communicating stories about what it means to be indigenous. You can see his work at Chanupa Hanska. I'm going to spell that at C-A-N-N-U-P-A-H-A-N-S-K-A dot com.
1: So another of your projects is Future Ancestral Technologies. And I know you're very passionate about that, having talked to Ginger uh, before we went on the show, Ginger being your wife and, and manager. Tell us in a nutshell, what is Future Ancestral Technologies?
2: Yeah, Future Ancestral Technologies is a it's an exploration into speculative fiction. Um, I am a science fiction fan. I grew up uh, reading science fiction. I uh, am always marveled about how the process of designing uh, ideas for our future creates a beacon for us as a culture to navigate towards. And um Rarely do you see Indigenous technology exhibited in science fiction. Rarely do you see us exhibited in in science fiction. And the violence that you face with that is that we do not exist in the future. Um, And so rather than kind of facing all of the um, microaggressions and strange uh, strangeness of our of our current world, I could imagine a future that celebrates our technology and moves um, moves us towards a more sustainable future. And uh, I've de- been developing all of these kind of works and regalias and ideas to build upon um, our cosmologies, our indigenous cosmologies, to celebrate the technology that we have been developing that I've been seeing kind of uh, Uh, appropriated and resold as green economies in the, you know, 21st century uh, without any sort of acknowledgement or recognition of the contributions of Indigenous people on our current uh, world. And so it's called future ancestral technology to look at time through an Indigenous lens which is not a linear trajectory into a future, but rather a radiating sphere of um, influence. And that's not just within you know, human generations, but it celebrates more than human kinship, relationships to um, environment and earth, and try to reestablish the connection of human beings to, um, as another one of the living things on the planet Earth. I think once we recognize, understand, and accept that we have not carved ourselves out of natural uh, uh, order, the sooner we'll be able to adapt and be in right relationship with the in- the environment that we live in.
1: So like, like a lot of your work, uh, this project is multimedia, incorporating lots of different elements. Maybe you could just give us sort of a brief overview, uh, particularly for members of our audience who are not familiar with your work of what are the elements that go into this? And again, it's multi-dimensional, multi-media. It's not just simply one costume, one regalia, it's a lot. Anyway, I've spoken a lot. You give us the overview.
2: Yeah, I, you know, it's interesting. The way that I've been building this uh, uh, science fiction isn't in a novel form where you're kind of telling one story, but rather, um, in my studio, it's like adapting to a um, kind of like a role-playing game uh, interface. There are uh, there are systems that exist, and I'm trying to adapt to them that I've that I've imagined. And so the the methodology, the premise of of materials that I use are all based in a future context with a certain number of rules that I have to kind of like adapt my artistic practice to, which is what is fun and exciting about it and why it is multi multifaceted because uh, one, of the, one of the components to this future um, culture that I'm developing is that we are living in the wake of our present. And so the industrial kind of mass production of materials, the emphasis on single use materials has created a, um, you know, uh, mountains of of waste. And so the material that I like to use and build the regalia for these future uh, communities is based on repurposing materials of our present. And so I am um, conscious about that and use repurposed materials in the development of these uh, uh, kind of future uh, uh, artifacts. Um, And so I'm using a lot of secondary materials. So um, I have a felt uh, connection to industrial felt here in New Mexico. Uh, where I get secondhand felt that is cut into strips, and it's a byproduct of a of another industry. <laughs> as well as, I use used sporting goods equipment. Um, I use uh, uh, acrylic, you know, uh, yarn afghans. Um, the idea is to to transform and repurpose materials that we would have that would be filling landfills in our future and uh, developing a culture out of that. So like I had said before, it's like a role-playing game where I develop a system and try to adapt my practice to it. And in the process, uh, celebrate like, what we would make regalia for in the first place, which is um, uh, you know, from an indigenous lens, and particularly from Mandan, Hidatsa, and Arikara tribes, which is where I'm an enrolled member, um Lakota influence there are there are ceremonies that take place that are a part of the protocols around being in right relationship with the earth where you are um celebrating the natural forces and you are asking to uh participate with and facilitate like a healthy environment for um everything to thrive in. And so the ceremonies that we perform are endurance performances um, that put us in right relationship with our natural environment. So I'm sharing a bit of that. And it's not uh, as they exist presently, which I don't think I have the right to um, share publicly, but if I imagine it in a future setting, then that allows me to kind of navigate the complexities of indigenous culture, uh, particularly in spiritual or ceremonial context.
0: Junipa, do you, can you elaborate a little bit? Is there a, do you feel a special obligation as an indigenous artist, uh, whether to your community or to, to, to making your community better understood or, or, or known uh, by, the broader, by the broader world?
2: yeah for sure i think i think native people in the united states are um viewed as one-dimensional entities um most of the museums that house our work exhibit us in a uh historical context so we have been like relegated to the past um and that our cultures exist within those spaces but you know even um having standing rock become a hashtag and exhibited on an international level it opened up channels of understanding that Indigenous people are uh, vast and complex in their cultural variations. And I don't think the the larger kind of popular culture understanding of Indigenous people uh, celebrates the complexity of our cultures, that we are not one-dimensional entities, but rather multifaceted, and that the cultures that are under the umbrella of Native American or Indigenous are varied and complex and oftentimes contradictory. Um, The scale of our inhabitation on, you know, in the Americas is vast and with that vastness there are variations in environments and those environments actually uh, are what informed our cultures and so the cultures the languages the dances all of these things are as varied as the environments that you travel um across the americas
1: you know when i was listening to you earlier talking about the connection to the planet and i couldn't help but think of climate change clearly that has to be in your mind and in some of your art just talk about that briefly because we're we're almost out of time here about
0: 30 seconds
2: yeah well, climate change has always been happening. Um, I, I think it's important to recognize that we are related to the environment and our influence presently is having, you know, uh, devastating effects. And we are not navigating or listening to each other, let alone the environment, at a fast enough pace to adapt ourselves to the environment. But I think. Climate change has always been happening. Um, and uh, people and other living things have always had to navigate and adapt to those, to those changes. It may not be comfortable. We are pushing ourselves in a, in a place that we have to recognize that the planet as an entity will be fine. Um, the species that are inhabiting it presently are, will suffer the consequences of, of our choices. And so just kind of recognizing that there is, um, there's a place for us uh, uh, in the natural uh, systems, uh, how we find ourselves back to understanding what our, our responsibility is to uh, environment, I think is the solution that we need uh, moving forward, um, but it's gonna take generations.
0: Chinupa, it is a great point. It's where we need to leave it. Chinupa Hanska Luger, thank you so much for being with us. That's all the time we have this week. Find us on Facebook and Twitter or visit PellCenter.org.